It's a blessing of high order, isn't it? Even as has already been mentioned more than once as our gathering has begun this, this afternoon, it's truly a wonderful opportunity to assemble, to leave the burdens and distractions and cares of the day behind for a while, and to focus, as we've noted, on the beautiful teaching of the truth of the Word of God. So thankful for each and every person who's assembled and gathered, for our membership at Pippin, and certainly for the visitors that have come our way. We want each one to appreciate that our desire is first and foremost to worship God in truth and in spirit in our services. As you may have already noted in the bulletin as well as in, I think, in an advertisement or announcement to that effect I made over a week ago, tonight's lesson would touch the subject you can see on the wall to my left. A rehearsal, a consideration, if you please, of the day of our Lord's crucifixion. Our question, though, may be a little different than you may otherwise suspect. Let me perhaps prepare you for the question I would like us to ask by this opening slide. Over the last six months or so, we have looked at a fair amount of chronology in our Sunday evening lessons. We've done so prompted by and large by the book of Daniel. We looked at the various kingdoms as the God of heaven foretold them, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, the Roman, and as we looked at each one of them, they in fact raised in their mind additional questions. And so at the top of that slide, more recently, we've asked these questions. What year was our Savior born? Do the Scriptures provide us an answer to that question? We found the answer, it would seem to be yes. 5 B.C. And furthermore, we asked, during what time of the year was He born? Particularly, you and I know that in our day and time, Christmas is celebrated and often many are under the impression that Jesus was born either on December the 25th or at least sometime about then. We found apparently that isn't so. The Bible seems to strongly suggest He was born in either late September or what we would call early October in the year 5 B.C. But that also led to some additional questions. What year did He die? What year did they nail those nails into His hands and feet and nail Him to that old rugged cross? We found somewhat recently, 30 A.D. is in harmony with all the aspects set forth in the Word of God. That brings us to one final chronological question having to do with, does the Bible give us information as to the day of the week on which our Savior was put to death? Do we know? Does the Bible give us information perhaps like that? I realize that throughout the ages there have been a number of questions about the nature of what day it was, and tonight we're going to look at a few assertions but our interest is far more likely, again, what does the Bible have to say about it? And so first, may I ask that you consider the following with me. Let's take a rather brief panoramic view of the scenes surrounding the death of Jesus. Clearly, this will be a bit brief. But nonetheless, I thought it would be wise to at least set before us some of those major matters because they will have a bearing on some of the features that will occur later in the lesson tonight. And so as you and I begin, you remember that Jesus gathered with His apostles and kept or celebrated. He observed that Passover, that very special Jewish celebration that the God of heaven had set before them well over a millennium and a half earlier. Needless to say, Jesus looked upon that very carefully. So much so that He sent Peter and John in Luke 22 to make ready for the celebration of that moment. 
You may remember he sent them out and gave them explicit orders to make ready so that he could gather with not only them but all those apostles and observe that Passover which all faithful Jews were expected to do. Beyond that, you notice, the text now tells us that even on that particular day, Jesus did assemble with them, just as again faithful Jews for so many centuries had done. It might do us well to remember that that phrase, at even, which does occur in the Old Testament prescription of when they were to celebrate the Passover. What does that phrase mean? That phrase literally has reference to that period of time between sunset and total darkness. Upon doing some research, I found that in what you and I would recognize as perhaps early April, that the sun sets in Jerusalem at roughly 20 minutes till 8 in the evening, and hence for the Jews that ended one day and started the next one. Needless to say, as you look at the things that proceed following that on the slide, after the Lord met with those apostles that night, celebrated that Passover, you and I remember that Judas rather hastily went out, made the final arrangements, of course, to betray his Lord, You'll notice the next statement is this one. Jesus, with some of those disciples, of course, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas brought a band, and there those officers arrested the Son of God. They, in fact, arrested him as if he were a common criminal. As they did so, they rather rapidly led him away to appear before various individuals, first of which was the father-in-law of the high priest. This gentleman's name was Annas. John chapter 18 verse 13 tells us the Lord first appeared before that man. He was very influential, highly respected. However, he quickly, that is Jesus, was also brought before the actual high priest whose name was Caiaphas, also told to us in John 18 verse number 13. As you and I now give thought to what time of day and the various events surrounding this, notice what comes next. You and I well remember that this is the scene in which three times Peter denied knowing the Lord. Jesus was there on trial, if you please, before these various Jewish officials. That denial brings us to note the following. We remember that there were those who sought testimony against Jesus that night, and ultimately false witnesses were thus those who were believed. They brought these testimonies, and in the final analysis... Our Lord was convicted of blasphemy. Of all the charges that various and sundry ones brought, none of them were able to stick because they in fact contradicted one another. Blasphemy was finally upon that which they decided. Following that, you notice early then, or rather in the wee hours, the late hours of the morning, Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin council. That highest ruling group of the Jews, Mark 15 verse number 1, gives us that information. They, of course, found him guilty of blasphemy and sentenced him to die, but the Jews were unable to carry out that sentence. The Romans, and they alone at that time, had the power of, of, of execution. And so these Jews sent Jesus to a Roman official named Pilate. Pilate heard the circumstances surrounding Jesus. You may remember with me, Pilate made the statement, I find no fault in him. Isn't that amazing? The next slide takes our journey even further. Despite the fact that Pilate had found nothing worthy to die, he turned Jesus over to those Jews. 
And Mark tells us very carefully that it was 9 o'clock in the morning. The third hour of the day, they brought Jesus to this place of crucifixion, and there they nailed the nails into His feet and hands. Our Lord was suspended on that old cross, not for any errors or sins that He had done, but for mine and yours. And in addition to that, you'll notice while on that cross, He only lived three, or rather six hours. Because we learned that at the ninth hour, which would have been three o'clock in the afternoon, our Savior gave up the ghost. He cried in John 19, verse 30, it's finished. He had come to do what the Heavenly Father had sent Him to accomplish. It's finished. Six hours on that cross, the last three, which were in total darkness. Maybe in fairness, we close that slide by noting... They then proceeded to take the Lord's body off. The Roman soldiers were sent to hasten the death of them by breaking their legs, but Jesus was already dead. That Roman soldier didn't break his legs, but did thrust the spear into his side, John 19.34. At that point, we close that by noting, they then buried the body of the Son of God. But we all remember He was resurrected not many days later. I say all of that to ask the question at the bottom of that slide. I've been rather careful throughout that presentation. I never made reference to a day of the week. On what day did that crucifixion occur? Was it Friday? Thursday? Wednesday? Do we know? I believe tonight as we study we shall reach a conclusion. I did though want you to consider some very highly respected sentiments throughout the years. I'm sure many of us are very familiar with Guy Napoleon Woods. We often just know him as Brother Guy in Woods. I quote, He asserted that our Lord was crucified on Friday. One could also echo the sentiment of the highly respected J.W. McGarvey, whose words were almost identical. Tonight, we're going to ask the question, Was Jesus crucified on Friday? Some of you may use a Bible, and mine is one of them that does this, as it gives presentation and as it gives detailed information about not only the week the Lord was crucified, but even the day. It says Friday. I suppose Friday has been the most common presentation through the years. Tonight we shall learn if that's so. If so, what verses lead to that conclusion? But if it's not Friday, I wonder what other day it was. The remainder of our lesson tonight will be an attempt to look with some care at a number of approaches. And let's begin with this one. At the top of this slide, you might begin to appreciate that might we take note of the resurrected fact of our Lord. I mentioned that a moment ago, and we know easily on what day of the week that occurred. In fact, a whole host of passages. In John chapter 20, verse number 1, Inasmuch as the Lord was crucified, as recorded in John 19... Chapter 20 opens with the blessed beauty of the fact that the women came to the tomb on the first day of the week and they found it empty. The first day of the week is carefully mentioned. In fact, John even goes so far as to say it was after the Sabbath. He emphasized the point that we are no longer on the seventh day of the week. We have crossed into the first day of the week and John says the women came early that morning. In fact, while it was even yet dark. And as they did so, they indeed found that tomb in which the body of Jesus had been laid. It was now empty. As you furthermore look with me, you'll appreciate 
in Mark 16, verse 1, and Luke 24, verse 1, opening verses of all those chapters, this beautiful observation is made. It was the first day of the week. At this point, we now come to the second observation. Now that we know very clearly on what day our Master was resurrected, the first day of the week brings us to the realization of Sunday. Look at point number two. Jesus Himself said something very powerful, very descriptive, and very direct. It was in Matthew, the 12th chapter. It was on that occasion that our Savior Himself had been asked, Ask about a sign. We'll not read the fullness of that given paragraph, but just simply to bring to our mind one of the statements that Jesus Himself made. Beginning in verse number 38 again, the Pharisees and others asked Jesus a sign, S-I-G-N, as to who He was and that which He was accomplishing. But you'll notice in verse number 39, Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As Jesus made that proclamation, notice He very clearly dipped back into history and affirmed that in regard to Jonah, this individual mentioned, of course, in the book of Jonah, just as surely He Himself was three days and three nights in the fish's belly. Jesus said the Son of Man, referring to Himself, would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus made that observation with respect, of course, to that which would occur concerning the time frame of His own burial and those events that would follow it. May you and I keep in mind then three days and three nights. Due to point number one on our slide a moment ago, we've now learned the resurrection took place on the first day of the week. All we need to do now is count backward. We count back then for three days and three nights and we begin to ask this question as you'll notice at the bottom of the slide. Jesus, on more than one occasion, not just this one, but on more than one occasion, He referred to the fact He'd rise the third day. Third day of what? Third day in which His body had been in the grave. We find that reference in Luke 18, for example. We find it also in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 16. By this point, any of us can then count backward. But there's one important observation that should be worthy of making at this point. When you and I think about three days and three nights, at least if we consider three full days and three full nights, 24 times 3 is 72. Does that then mean that Jesus was to be His body that is in the grave for 72 full hours? By now we're all aware that cannot be. If Jesus arose early on a Sunday morning but He died in the afternoon on one day, there's no way it could be an even 72 hours. Is that a contradiction? It's not. For look at the next slide with me. The way the Bible writers use references to things like the third day or to three days and nights, those things are not intended to convey what you and I would read as full lengths of time with respect to each day. Consider these examples. In Esther 4, verse number 16, 
we have on that occasion the information that Esther had already become the queen. She had been selected by Ahasuerus. And in fact, Haman's evil plot had already become known. He, in fact, had a decree that all the Jews ultimately would be killed and the king signed it. But we notice something interesting in, in, in Esther 4.16. You may recall Esther overcome with the thoroughness of that moment. She said, fast for three days and three nights. Don't eat a bite or drink anything for three days and three nights. But then you notice two verses later, it says on the third day she went into the king. It would appear then that there is to be an understanding then that these three full days or three days and three nights harmonize with the appreciation of third day so that there one appreciates it wasn't a full passage of 72 hours. Another example, in Genesis chapter 42, verses 17 and 18, Joseph by that time found himself... He had already risen to great prominence, and his brothers came to buy grain. You may notice that Joseph hadn't revealed himself to them yet, but he said on the, for three days a given event was to occur. That is to say, they were to be kept or at least maintained. But then it quickly says in the next verse, on the third day. So you'll notice, again, it's not to be interpreted as three full 24-hour periods making 72. Even the Bible writers use that observation with at least a small degree of latitude. Their way of thinking along that, time, along that was not exactly the same as ours today. That'll become important in just a moment. For after all, look at the bottom two statements on that slide. Jesus very clearly asserted... Three days and three nights. Now let's do some counting. If our Savior was crucified on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, then you notice, and for certainly if He arose on Sunday morning, that means He was in the grave only two nights. And furthermore, He was in the grave only one full day and parts of two others. Easy enough to count that, isn't it? By the same token, look at the next line. Suppose he were crucified on Thursday afternoon. Now look at the timing of it. He indeed was in the grave three full nights. It would have been Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. And furthermore, he would have been in the grave two full days and parts each of, of others. Now in light of those things, might we take it a step further? We've at least set the matter before us, appreciating three full days or three days and three nights. The plot thickens slightly as we come to the next two slides. As you come to this one with me, might I ask you to remember a fact that you and I noted at the outset of the lesson. Those apostles had, a, had gathered to keep the Passover. This was the Passover season. It was a very special time of the year for the Hebrews. When they gathered, they of course went in their mind back to the scene of their exodus from Egypt 1,500 years earlier. And as they did that, this was a memorial, of course, to God's goodness to them. It was to be observed very carefully, very directly, and with a great deal of understanding as to what it intended. So with that in mind, look at what came next. The Old Testament, God was very specific as to when the Passover was to be slaughtered. We've studied it in some detail in our Sunday morning Bible class in recent months, haven't we? 
on the tenth day of the first month, the Jews were commanded to take a lamb. They were to take it up on that day and keep it up four days, and on the fourteenth day of the first month, they were to kill it. On that first Passover, they took some of the blood and put it on the lentils and the doorpost. But that particular time of the first month was to be recognized throughout the ages that followed. So you and I now can look at a calendar. What about the 14th day of the first month? When did that occur? Look at some of the next developments on that slide. One point that I believe would be well worth our while to note on this occasion is this. Think about the 14th day of a given month. As you and I can well tell, that slides throughout the week, varying from year to year on what day of the week that occurs. Isn't that true of our calendar today? For instance, think about the 4th of July. That's coming up here in a few days, and yet throughout the years that occurs on differing days of the week. This year, if memory serves me right, that 4th of July happens to fall on a Monday. Last year it was a Saturday. Or think about, again, other things that occur on a given day, such as Christmas. This year it's on Sunday. Last year it was Friday. Well, the same thing would have been true of the 14th day of that month of Nissan. It would have, in fact, moved throughout the week as the years varied. That'll be important in just a moment for the following reason. That Passover, in as much as it occurred on the 14th day of the month, it was followed by something. It was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. God also specified in the Old Testament that for seven days following that day of Passover, the Jews were to celebrate and observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days there was to be no leaven in the house. Not only were they not to eat any, but it was not even so much as to be in the, in the dwelling places. Therefore, it's easy to count. That Feast of Unleavened Bread would have been celebrated from the 15th of Nisan to the 21st day of Nisan. Again, a very special time. Doesn't that then mean the following? You and I remember from Numbers 28, verses 18 and 19, that the first day of that Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be a day of no work. They were not permitted to do any servile work that day. The interesting feature of that then leads us to note the next comment. Suppose that first day of unleavened bread fell on a Friday. That would have meant they were to do no work that day, but the very next day was the Sabbath and they were to do no work that day either. If, in fact, that first day of unleavened bread fell on Friday, that would have meant two consecutive days that in many ways would have acted like a Sabbath. They weren't to offer all the sacrifices, admittedly, on one of the days, but nonetheless, they were not permitted to do any work. That issue of consecutive Sabbaths will be very important in just a moment. For look where it leads us at the bottom. I found a calendar that shows the Hebrew year in the year 30 A.D. And here's that calendar. Let me take just a moment and say, that trying to put together a Hebrew calendar is rather challenging, partly because we realize their calendar is lunar. It is not based on the sun like you and I are accustomed to today. And so as you and I realize the cycle of the moon or the phases of the moon, 
they are not in step, you see, with the months as you and I have them. Isn't it true? The phases of the moon pass through about every 27 days. That means the building of a lunar calendar is challenging. But here's the calendar for the year 30 A.D. And may I say, at the top, you'll notice it's Nisan. This is then that month that the God of heaven determined. Look at where the 14th day of the month occurs. Now remember, God determined the 14th day was the Passover. For you and me, we would claim that that, at least in our modern day, would have fallen on a Wednesday. With those thoughts in mind, look at the bottom. That would have meant the first day of unleavened bread, which was the next day, would have fallen on Thursday, or the day that, of course, looks like that form on the calendar. And from there, we can then appreciate how it ties to the crucifixion as well as to the resurrection of our Lord. It is, as you look at that calendar, some interesting things to behold. One interesting point that is very vital when you and I look at a calendar, we are so accustomed to thinking of the day beginning at midnight. But keep in mind, the, Jew, the Jewish day did not begin at midnight. It began at sundown. So therefore, let's trace it like this. So, as the sun said on that day, we would call Wednesday, the Passover began. And Jesus met with His apostles, and they kept that Passover on what we would call Wednesday evening just after sundown. That meant that the entirety of a 24-hour period then would have been, of course, that Passover day, but that would have meant the next day would have been the first day of unleavened bread, which would have began at what you and I would call Thursday evening, just after sundown. Now, keeping in mind that Thursday evening, or that Thursday that day, then would have gone until the time of sunset on Friday. But now you and I know at Friday sundown, the Sabbath begins for them. And hence, that was the Sabbath day. Two consecutive Sabbaths. At this point, you and I know then as that ended, that now appears to pose a very different picture than what we've studied so far. Remember, Brother Woods and Brother McGarvey and others made comment that our Savior was crucified on Friday. But now Friday, of course, to us would look like the 16th of Nisan, may I say, or at least if one counted it the 15th, which appears to be one day too late. That was no longer the Passover day. What do we make of this? Let's go to the next slide. By the way, you'll notice that calendar that I just asked you to consider does paint a picture that if that was true, the 14th of Nisan on what we would call a Wednesday, then Jesus was put to death on the afternoon of the next day. That would have asserted Thursday. Let's see if that makes some sense to us. The comment I've placed at the top of that slide, if as indeed that which we just noted, that Passover beginning in what we would have called a Wednesday evening, again, Jesus was hung on the cross at 9 o'clock the next morning. We'd call that Thursday. And He died six hours later. We'd call that Thursday. Well, let's look at some additional facts. In Matthew chapter 28, verse number 1, we have another interesting observation. I would invite you to listen as I read this, what seems to be a rather innocent remark. 
In the end of the Sabbath, as it became to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. As you and I read that and make observation of the usage of the word Sabbath, it's rather interesting to note that in Greek that's plural. It's almost as if there was a reference to more than one Sabbath. And in light of our previous study, that seems to make sense. There were two consecutive Sabbaths that year in the sense that two consecutive days where no servile work was permitted. Could this be a reference in Matthew to that, to that, real, to that reality? Look at another consideration. In John chapter 18, verse number 28. You and I had read in our hearing earlier this evening as the lesson text taken also from John the 19th chapter. There are two verses there that I would invite your consideration to. Verse number 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And then verse 31, The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation, that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was in high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. It certainly is true that as one gives thought to this preparation for the Sabbath, that certainly makes you and me think like this. The Sabbath was Saturday. And if it was the preparation for it, shouldn't that be one day earlier? Namely, Friday. No doubt that sounds like a very strong argument. But it seems to me the Bible has some more to say about that. After all, look at some of those additional comments. The Jews, over the period of years leading up to this point, had made some choices, and they, in fact, made a determination that you and I would find very unusual. It's found back as far as Ezekiel 45, verse 21. Let's go back and listen to the words of Ezekiel for just a moment. Ezekiel chapter 45, verse number 21. It was the case in the days of Ezekiel, that we notice something about the observance of both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It says, In the first month, in the fourteenth day of the month, ye shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. That verse, among others, helps us see that something rather strange had occurred over the centuries. God had made it rather clear in the books of Leviticus and Numbers that there was to be a Passover day followed by seven days. That was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there was a total of eight days. But the Jews had made the decision to start celebrating the two things together and basically celebrated a total of seven days and let the first day of Unleavened Bread be the same as the Passover. They had no scriptural authority for that. Ezekiel wasn't the only one who mentioned that they were doing it. It's just that that one makes it rather clear that's what was happening. May I say to you, that then harmonizes rather well, for that would mean that the Jews were celebrating the Passover, the mainline Jews at least, one day too late. One day later than what God had commanded. 
that then explains the characteristic of why they called it the Passover. It really was already a day late. Finally, you'll notice our Savior, the second to the last comment on that slide, our Savior died on that day that is called in Luke 23, 54, the day the mainline Jews called the Passover. But remember, Jesus had made ready a day earlier because He kept the law the way it was supposed to be. He kept it as God commanded, observing it on the 14th of Nisan, not the 15th. Finally, that would mean that Jesus was crucified on Thursday afternoon. That harmonizes with not only the Old Testament presentation, but it seems to harmonize with all the features that I was able to find even in the New Testament. Every feature and aspect, including the three days and three nights. Maybe it's in light of that that we could draw this point of conclusion to our lesson tonight. The crucifixion of Jesus was a momentous event. It truly was, in reality, an earth-shaking matter. For you and I remember when they crucified the Son of God, the sinless, guileless, perfect one. The Jews, of course, were such that in their rejection of Christ, as Daniel prophesied, the abomination of desolation was soon going to come. When Jesus was put to death, just as He had said for three days and three nights, He was in the tomb. They would take us back to Thursday afternoon. Jesus had celebrated the Passover one night previous, the 14th of Nisan. As He did so, He was fully in keeping with everything the Old Testament had commanded. And He sets before you and me to this day a timeless example of faithful obedience to all that God has said. It's not our business to change it to suit our preference, like it seems the Jews had done. Maybe they thought eight days was too many, it didn't matter. God said that there was to be seven-day feast following the Passover. They had taken it to a seven-day feast including the Passover. That was not good. As our Savior was put to death on that Thursday afternoon, it was, in fact, an occasion in which then a double set of days followed. The first day of unleavened bread, then the actual Sabbath, and triumphantly, victoriously, He arose on that Sunday morning, the first day of the week. We are assembling today on the first day of the week because, as we remember, the New Testament authorizes that. Isn't it true in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, as well as in Acts 20, verse 7, those first century saints assembled on the first day of the week. Tonight, as we come to an appreciation of this faith-building study based on John 19, 31, I hope each of us will appreciate that the words of men, in light of statements about things contained in the Bible, can sometimes be mistaken. But the Bible is always right. It might be that there's someone in the audience tonight who, as you've examined your life, as you've given thought to your life, realize that all isn't as well as it ought to be. Jesus died on a cross just as we've studied tonight, and His death was for the purpose of making possible human salvation. For neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. Tonight, if you're apart from Christ... Realize as an alien sinner that you are commanded that you must believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess the greatness of His name as a Son of God, and be baptized. If we could assist you in that tonight, we'd be honored to do it. If you have been a faithful Christian at some point, but tonight you're not, 
you've lived a life that's brought disgrace perhaps on the master that loves you, why not come back rushing to his side at once? He demands that you do that as you, of course, repent of those sins and confess them appropriately and beseech the prayers of brethren to God on your behalf. Tonight, if we could be of help to anyone in either of those ways, we would admonish you, we would urge you to come and do it at once. While together we stand and while we sing.